From the start, I want to tell you what my intent is this morning. My intent this morning is I want you, each and every one of you, to realize that you have permission to serve God. And in so doing, you have permission to serve one another and serve in the world that He loves. And my hope is that in the next few minutes, when we're finished here, there will be nothing, my prayer is, there will be nothing that holds you back from understanding what you could do, what you can do, what is possible in the name of God. I'm not saying you'll be able to do everything. All I hope is that you will have the confidence to know that you can do what God has given you to do. Well, with that kind of setup, I need to ask for some help, and I'm sure you won't mind asking with me, so let's pray together. Father, we ask now at this time that in a busy, confused world, in a world filled with turmoil, in a, in a world that um, through fear or through anxiety or just through distraction causes us to stop focusing on the grace that you have given us. Would you center us for just the next few minutes? Center us so that your word will be clear to us and we may leave here seeing one another, seeing ourselves, and even seeing the church in a way that we never have before. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So I want to um, jump over from 1 Peter 2 to 1 Peter 4. So, trouble with my control. There we go. 1 Peter 4, um, the neighbor text to 1 Peter 2, where we are all living stones coming to the cornerstone. Well, what do we make of that? What does it mean? So what? Here's the so what from 1 Peter 4. Peter encourages the church and he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Logan, I'm going to switch out. Thank you. There we go. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay. We, today, and again, to make this very simple, okay? This will awake some of you, and I want everybody to know this. You know, on Sesame Street, and some of you, you're, you're like me, you grew up with this. Every episode was always brought to you by a letter and a number. Well, today's sermon, to make it very simple, is brought to you by the letter G, okay? Greatness 
gifts, and good. They're all in there. It's all in there in that Scripture. What is true greatness? What are the gifts of God? And how how does this all work together for the greater good? And if nothing else, I hope you'll remember these three words. Let's talk about greatness because greatness is redefined in the kingdom, in the rule of God. Ancient concepts of greatness were always assuming that it was better to be served and that serving someone else is undignified. It's true that we've gotten much better in the 21st century and in the centuries that preceded this one about seeing service as maybe something noble, seeing service as something that could be good. And yet there's always been, even in our culture, that idea that we want to be successful and we want to be the one who can at least serve others out of our position of success. And that there has always been this idea of class in our culture. That's been a problem. Jesus turns it around. He doesn't just turn it over because at the same time in history, you've also got another impulse that you see showing up in a lot of political movements where we're just going to take the class society, we're going to turn it upside down, we're going to make the servant class go up to the top, they're going to be the ones that get honored, and we're going to get rid of all the rich people and the ruling people, and you still hear strains of that in today's world. Let's understand that Jesus favors neither of those and in fact redefines the way human beings relate to one another he's reversing not just the order of society he's reversing the way we see one another in mark 10 he says whoever wishes to be first or greatest among you he must become a slave of all For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, thank you for the amen. We should all be amening a statement like that. But understand that when Jesus first utters those words, it's not going to be met with an amen. It's going to be met with a what? The Son of Man? He's supposed to be the one in charge. He's supposed to be the one who rolls in here and sets things up the way they're supposed to be. He's supposed to be the one who gets rid of all the fat cats and raises up all the people who are downtrodden. He's supposed to be the one that sets things straight. And when he does, everybody's going to know it. But now you're saying that he came to serve? That's not what son of man, that's not what leaders, that's not what kings do. This is why Jesus is met with confusion from Peter who, by the way, is now writing the letter that we've been spending so much time with. Do you think Peter got it? Do you think Peter had his view of things reversed? If it can happen for Peter, then I hope it can happen for us as well. Let me show you a a cousin of this text right here in Luke 22, okay? Get your Bible, get your electronic whatever, and uh, anyway, look at uh, Luke 22. Yeah, I don't know what you have, iPhones, 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 Maybe some of you do have iPhones, iPhones, iPads, whatever it is. I don't care. Uh, but uh, take a look at this with me. Luke 22. We're, going, we're in the Lord's Supper here. And um, verse 24, 
they begin to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. They're at a gathering where they are supposed to remember the things that God has done. They are at a gathering where they are to remember the Passover, the Exodus, where God takes them from being slaves to the Egyptians and delivers them and makes them a people. Once they were not a people, but now they're going to be the people of God. Hey, wait, that comes out of 1 Peter. That's not Exodus. Uh Uh-huh. The Exodus is all throughout Scripture. That's That's a lesson for another time. But they're getting their identity in what God does. And they're at this feast to remember that, and instead they're arguing about who's in charge. They're arguing about rank, position, status, favor, So Jesus teaches. He said, in this world, the kings and the great men, they lord it over their people. And yet they're called benefactors. A benefactor is someone that is kind and gracious to you. But you always know that the benefactor remains in charge. You owe it. To the benefactor. Their grace comes with strings attached. But among you, says Jesus, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest position. And the leader should be like a servant. Now here's the question. Listen to this. Who is more important? Who is the greater one? Who has the greater status? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Who's greater? The one who is served or the one who serves? Now, that's an easy answer. It's not a trick. It's an easy answer. The easy answer is mm, the one who's being served. That's the greater one. The one who's serving is working for the one who's being served. Right. That's easy. There's nothing tricky about that. Jesus affirms that as a normal fact. That's the natural understanding. And he's not going to turn it over either. He says the one who sits at the table, of course, of course, but not here. For I'm among you as one who serves. What Jesus is saying is that's the natural understanding and that's the way it is. However, There is a new reality here. And it's not simply a reversal. It's the idea that greatness, Jesus is not letting that go. I am the Son of Man. I am the one invested with this power. And yet, I will serve. And not just as some noble benefactor that you're going to owe a favor to later, but I'm going to do that because this is the new definition of how we relate to one another. Notice in verse 28. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus starts out by talking about table fellowship. And everybody knows this. You come to the table, and the people who are sitting in seats, you know who... You know who sits at certain seats. You've done this over Thanksgiving. You might do it again at Christmas. 
You ever had that? How many of you went to a holiday meal for the first time, maybe with new friends or in-laws, and you sat in the wrong seat? Boy, now there's a moment for you. What do you do? You know, you bring the, you, she brings the old boy to meet the, the parents and everything, and he ends up sitting in dad's seat. <clears throat> How do you handle that? Okay, we have, my point is, we have those little understandings about these things. And Jesus says, you do too. And, and he moves into a position, he gets out of the seat he's supposed to be in, because they all know he's our teacher, he's our Lord, he's a son of man. I mean, they're beginning to understand who he is. They know that God has given him a kingdom, a rule, over a kingdom which is all of creation, and then more even. And yet he's moving into the servant position. When you read John's account in John 13, he, he, even, he even takes off his jacket Dresses up like a serpent, demeans himself. Why is he doing that? He's not supposed to do that. Okay. He's not doing it for a photo op. He's not doing it for, for PR. He's not doing it because it's good every once in a while for a political leader to roll up his sleeves and serve in a soup kitchen. You know, it's not that. It's because he says, in this kingdom around the table, we relate to each other in a different way. That's greatness. They've been hit with this new idea of greatness. And when this new idea of greatness then... And by the way, where did he leave them? He didn't say, now you're going to be servants. And everybody needs to start wearing, um, you know, t-shirts and blue jeans and, you know, work shirts. And you're not going to have any of this ostentatious, uh, rich stuff showing off. No, no. He doesn't go for that either. He says... You know what? You're going to be at the table too. You're going, to be, you're going to be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, at his table, everybody, everybody is going to get a promotion. But in that promotion comes a greater calling to service. Huh. This teaching could really be misunderstood. Where we could say, you know what, it sounds like then the more people I serve, I become more of a person in charge. I become the person that's indispensable and everybody has to pay attention to me. Uh-huh, that's not what Jesus is teaching. We could also say, well, okay, listen then, the guys like Benjamin and other people who are leaders of the church, you know what? They need to serve me and meanwhile, I'll just be here and I'll just be content. And you know what, come on, give me what I want, give me what I want. Take care of things. That's not the teaching either. At the table, we're all called to serve according to the grace that God gives us. And this gets into the notion of the gifts. In 1 Peter 4, he discusses these various gifts. Now, there is nothing in Scripture, there's nothing in this teaching of God about greatness that supports the idea that we have a top-down hierarchy of leadership. Instead, the phrase is that God gives this grace and the service is always from God and to God. Still, our typical notion is something like this. We see God, and He's enthroned, and Christ is there with Him. And we don't, we don't worry too much about working out the uh, heavenly dynamics of who's in charge. We've got God and Christ there. Besides, we spent a lot of centuries 
early on in the last millennium, not, not us personally, but you know, we weren't around, but we spent a lot of time then worrying about how God and Christ were related and who outranks who. And then finally along the way we've decided, you know what, we'll leave that to them. Let's sort out how things are supposed to be lined up in this earthly realm. And so what we do is we put the leaders in the next line and then we have members, those are the little M's, and then we've got preacher types, or sometimes what we do is the leaders then have to set up a program or a committee or a ministry, and then they might have a group of people who work there with a, uh, that little D is for deacon, and, uh, and then we get some more members. And so as long as we get all of these slots and ranks and everybody charted out exactly how it should go, and we get all these little positions of government in place, then we're okay. We've got a functioning church. You can tell by my attitude I'm not real patient with that. Okay, and here's the reason why. Because you don't see it in Scripture. There are those titles, there are those roles, but there's something else. And for years, I even have seen it like this. And I guess being in that, I've thought, you know what? It doesn't really operate that well. I can't tell you how many times I have washed and waxed and cleaned my cars and the engine doesn't run any better but sometimes that's what we do in church we think if we get all the right people in all the right seats that the engine's going to run better maybe we've been neglecting how god really intends for this to come together and maybe we've been neglecting the various forms of god's grace We talk about gifts. Gifts, that word for gift, is very similar in the original to the word grace. In fact, sometimes it's really hard. A gift isn't really a gift the way we think of uh, gifts. Under the tree, wrapped up in a bow, something somebody gave you. Hooray, I'm going to have something I didn't have before, what I've always wanted. A gift really isn't a gift, and maybe the better way, you can't say it very well in English, is It's not that everyone has a gift, it's that everyone has a grace. Everyone has been given graces, grace. It's the noun form of this. Well, it's another noun form. It's it's really interesting. So everyone has this manifestation of God's grace. That when you have His grace working in you, it unlocks what God wants you to be and how He wants you to fit together. And a better view than the one you see on the screen right now might be something like this. You begin with God. We're going to end with God too. And then you have all of these... Again, there's no M&Ms up here. There's no um, P's and D's or L's or anything. It's just all of these different pieces. Many shapes. In fact, when I was making this little graphic, I thought, I'll put an M on this one. I thought, no, because you can't do that. But you have all these different pieces, and they're all there together. And this isn't diversity. No, it's much more than that. This is grace, the various forms of God's grace. And then what happens is you power all of this with the Spirit, 
And so what starts to happen is God's grace goes out, ministers to each one, they all minister to each other, and you have this dynamic spirit of empowerment where everyone is ministering and serving to one another. They are all at the table in the kingdom. And I want you to keep this image in mind because in weeks to come, we're going to look at how this this is even compared in Scripture to the idea of a mosaic. Some of you have seen mosaics. Maybe you've made one in, in, in school out of, out of colored pieces of paper, or, or maybe you've seen historical mosaics, or maybe you have one somewhere. Or, you know, and what they are is they're little, think about it, a mosaic is a little piece of broken glass or, blo- or broken pottery. Sometimes mosaics in the ancient world were made out of trash. They were made of the broken pieces of valuable vessels, but they were repurposed and they became beautiful works of art. But all of those little pieces stuck together by the artist, by the craftsman, make it into something that then when you pull back and you look at it, it interacts with you and you see something. I'd like that to be a new image for who we are as the church. Not some top-down, government-style organization. But a living mosaic. Little tiny stones, little pieces brought together. And each of us demonstrating the various forms of God's grace. Look at what he said in 1 Peter. He talked about all of us loving one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. He talked about all of us, verse 9, offering hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why? Because grumbling is contrary to that spirit of love. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received from who? From God. Use it not to serve yourself, but to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So when you have this gift, It's not your job to just keep things going. You have a faithfulness to the grace that God has given you. And no one is exempt from this. We don't have a few talented people or a few designated leaders who are supposed to keep everything going so that you, the audience, are okay. It doesn't work that way in the church. In the church, the image is of all of these pieces coming together and being what God wants them to be. That begins with the greatness, the way God defined it, of each part serving each other part. And then the gifts that are given. But You know, we always ask the question, okay, that's great, but don't we have these roles of leadership? I mean, who's in charge? If we don't know who's in charge, if, if we don't have somebody designated, then how's anything going to get done? Well, leadership is a grace. Leadership is a gift given by God. It's given in various forms. But I understand the anxiety. The anxiety can always be, well, yeah, but if we, if we don't have, you know, ministers or elders or pastors or whatever, I mean, if we don't get those in place, then, then we're not going to get all the mechanical parts right so that the church works. I mean, okay, forget mechanical analogies. What about other organizational realities? I mean, the military, you know who's in charge in the military, right? And that's obvious to everyone. I learned a great lesson in Texas from a man I called Colonel Taylor. He fought in the 10th Mountain Division in World War II. 
He would tell me stories about what he did. Um, he started as a private in the military going into World War II. He ended as a colonel. Now, for those of you who understand rank, that is quite a journey, okay? I mean, he nearly, I mean, there, there's only one step that he hadn't attained. That was general. So he had nearly run the whole rank. Things he did, just an incredible man and humble and yet would tell me his stories. In fact, uh, one of these pictures here, he brought in some pictures one day similar to these. These aren't those pictures, obviously. You'll see the picture of the men climbing the mountain. He told me that one time they had to spend all night climbing a, 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 a cliff face. And if they pulled a rock out while they were climbing it, they had to stick it in their pack or stick it in their pocket. If they dropped it, they would alert the enemy embankment. You know, they had a gun embankment up above them. And when they got to the top, they took that embankment out after climbing all night. That's who these guys were. The things that they did were amazing and heroic, astounding. And it was just like every day at work for them. So he's showing me some of these pictures, and I'm no, I know his story, and I have a timeline in my head, and I know that there was a period where he was the sergeant over that group. And I looked at the pictures, and I said, wait a second. You know, he's kind of like this one on the bottom where it's just a group of guys, you know, together like that. I said, you're a sergeant in these pictures, right? Yeah. I said, where's your insignia? You should have stripes. He said, uh-uh. He said, um, I wasn't going to wear stripes. He said, that just tells the enemy who to shoot first. He said, besides, I didn't need them. Anybody that needed to know I was a sergeant, they already knew it. Good point. And I think that's a, I've thought about that and that lesson on leadership. In the kingdom of God, we don't have to have stripes. We don't have to have medals and badges and insignia. We know who our leaders are. We know who does what if we pay attention to the grace that God has given us. They did what they did simply because they were trying to achieve a mission. And they knew that they had all the permission that they needed to accomplish that mission. Which, by the way, have you noticed that the word permission includes the word mission in it? I don't think etymologically there's any connection there whatsoever. But that's not going to stop me from using that point. And I want you to remember it. You have permission because of God's mission. God gives, I told you this was brought to you by the letter G, God gives His grace in the form of various gifts to accomplish the common good. You have permission to do that. Don't worry about who's got the insignia. Don't worry about what the leadership or the high command says. Accomplish the mission, the common good. And, and what we do is we serve one another for the sake of His glory. And that means we're going to measure things a little differently. We tend to measure things in terms of, well, how many leaders do we have? How many participants do we have? Um, what's our attendance like? Instead, the metric according to Scripture is, are you being faithful to the grace that God has given you? Are you being faithful with that gift, with that grace that God has given you, for the mission, for the common good. That means we're going to see things differently. We're going to measure things differently. We're going to evaluate things differently. 
Let me make this very practical to us. Kind of the so what moment. I'm going to play church doctor here, and I'm going to diagnose us. I would say that right now, we're in a position of, of, well, we're in a place where we are transitioning. We've got a lot of fantastic ministries. And some of those ministries need new people to lead them. Or they just need new people to come alongside those who are using their gifts and their grace. We have some areas where we need people using their grace and their gifts. And there's so much of this going on right now that it can be very disorienting, and it's more than what's going to be accomplished with a few announcements right here in the pulpit. Because some of you are new here. You've either grown up here and now you're an adult, and we thank God for the way God's grace has been working in you. It's been fascinating to see that. Some of you are brand new. We're just meeting you. Maybe you came here, and, you, and you know, one of the things we give thanks for this year is that you're part of our church family. We're always impressed by the way people are coming into this church family. And I know that it can be difficult sometimes to wonder, well, where are the doors of access? How do I get involved? And I'm going to confess this to you right now. Um, we're kind of fuzzy about that sometimes. And one of the reasons is, is we need people who have that grace of bringing it all together. And we need to unleash that. You're not cattle that we're going to herd through a chute on the way to slaughter. You're sheep. And you're looking to be led. And there's a difference. Some of you have been here for a long time. And I'm going to say this, and I mean no offense. I want to say thank God for you. But you know what? Let's just, let's just name it because I'm getting there too. We're getting old. Hmm? We're starting to feel it. And if I've offended you, well, I can't hold back the wheels of time. Okay, But it's It's real. And the anxiety that some of us feel is we really do need new people. And let me say this. If you're new here, you need to get to know who those people are. Because those are people with wisdom. Those are people, they have, they have, they have put things into place that are like a legacy for the rest of us. Now, here's where this affects all of us. Because I've talked about different people. And you know what? I've probably left out a few examples. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to get all this narrative correct right here and now. Not unless you want to be here for another three hours. I'll take that as a no. All right. So here's the situation we're in. Church doctor, this body of Christ is hyperventilating. What do you mean by that? We've got a lot of service that goes on in here, and that's good. It's a good thing. But we're hyperventilating. Hyperventilation is, is, is too much of a good thing. It's when you're breathing so rapidly you get more oxygen. Which, hey, oxygen is good. I'm all for oxygen. Everybody like oxygen? Uh, you, know, you need it. So. But you get too much oxygen, your carbon dioxide level goes down, and you get too much of it and your breathing isn't right. Have I, have I got that right? I've got a ruling from the judges. Okay, I've got that right. All right, there we go. I've checked with my medical board. So. Um, we can have so much service that we've ended up with oxygen and we're not getting the cycle of spiritual breathing down right. Well, there's so much to do, preacher. We've got so much we need to do. This is the way God makes things, okay? Don't fuss with me. Breathing is a matter, 
It's a cycle of inhaling and exhaling. Maybe you don't like exhaling. Maybe you don't like inhaling. I'll tell you what then, since this is a world where everybody gets what they want, you pick which one of those you like the best and then just do that, okay? And that way you can always exhale. It's not going to last very long. There's got to be a cycle to these things. And what I think we need is a church body, and I want us to think about this as we go into the next year, and we've got to keep balance here, is I want us to keep serving like we've always been. But for those ministries that need new people, and there needs to be mentoring that takes place, we need some of you who've been our leaders, who've been the ones who've gathered all this wisdom. We need you to be mentors, and we need you to show the rest of us what it looks like to do what you're doing. And not just to do it the same way you're doing, but to take what you're doing and use the grace that God has given us and do more. And we need those of you who are looking for something to do. You need to go to those who can be your mentors. But the way we're going to make that happen is we're going to have to take a deep breath slowly. Which means we're going to have to create the opportunities for us to get to know one another. Because I've talked about this as a general concept And you may be asking, well, who are the people that have these ministries? And who are the people who are new? Where are we going to get the people to help with these ministries? Who are the people that have these ministries? I'm not going to answer that for you. Because I can't. You've got to find the answers. And you'll tell me. And you'll know. But the way we do it is, we've got to create the moments of rest. We've got to create the moments of fellowship where we minister and serve one another. Why do you think Jesus, in the midst of their busy schedule, tells the apostles, come with me to a quiet place, and we're going to go pray? And by the way, our text in 1 Peter 4 started out with this statement. The end of all things is near. Oh boy. Don't we hear that all the time? We hear it in church. We hear it outside of church. Everything's falling apart. The wheels are coming off the cart. We're on the slippery slope. Everything's doomed. So what do we need to do? We need to do more. We need to fix it. We need to find out what's going on. We need to go pound some people into the earth. We need to go light a fire into some people. We need to hit people right between the eyes with a two-by-four. Do whatever it takes. Come on, preacher. Get everybody stirred up. Use guilt. Use whatever it takes. It's not what Scripture says. The end of all things is near. Be alert. Oh, be vigilant. Be of sober mind. Pay attention. Why? So that we can fix things, so that we can get to work, so that all of us can get together, so that we can come up with plans, so that we can come up with with 30-page reports about what needs to be done. No. So that you may pray. Did you see that? Well, that sounds like a bunch of lazy people sitting around in a room. Just bowing their heads and muttering stuff to an invisible God. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff has changed the world. That's the kind of thing that whenever we are in need, you ask for it. Please pray for me, we say. Because we're going to the one who gives the many forms of grace. So that he can do through us immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Well, 
I hope that you see things a little differently. I hope that in seeing things a little differently, this might be the beginning for you to take action a little differently. As we end on this song, we're going to affirm that the greatest commandments of Jesus were not, number one, be ye busy, and number two, be ye anxious, because I'm coming back, and if I catch you, there's going to be a reckoning. No, the greatest commands of Jesus are love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And by the way, that cycle keeps us from just serving God with all of our energy. And in the meanwhile, our, our mind and our spirit burns out. That balance also, that, that gift of God's grace, keeps us from just sitting around and glorifying God in our mind and in our study and never doing anything about it. But the greatest command is to love God. And then what follows on the heels, and that's first. That's first. Because if you love God and you know how much God loves you, then the capacity to love one another. And that starts here in the church fellowship. That starts here in the church family. And as we love one another, then we love the world around us because we see them as part of God's family too that God is reaching out to and drawing in. What grace has God given you? What gift has he given you? Let's affirm Let's, let's affirm our, our love. Let's love one another because it covers over a multitude of sins. And let's let this song be our prayer. And if you want more prayer, why don't you come down here with those who have the gift and the grace of leadership and prayer or meet them in room 100. Let's stand. Let's sing together and pray.